0: stories that matter studios i'm nance haxton and this is the streets of your town the journo project this podcast is all about recognizing great australian journos wherever they may be around the world with the media in australia under increasing attack and hard-won freedoms under threat there's no better time to celebrate and highlight the work of the top journalists from down under this multi-award-winning radio documentary producer specialises in telling taboo stories that most people flinch at, bringing important societal issues out of the shadows. Perth-based reporter Kirsty Melville challenges the traditional assumption that journalists shouldn't mind their own experiences for their stories, and talks of her struggles with bringing to light social justice issues that also expose individual people's pain. Her documentary, The Storm, vividly tells the personal story of the lifelong impact of child sexual abuse from the perspective of her former partner, Eric. But through that sharp lens, it sparked a national debate about sexual abuse and led to feedback from hundreds of listeners, commending Eric and Kirsty for their bravery and honesty and helping them better understand this complex issue. She tells me on this episode of The Journo Project how she navigates the ethical and emotional challenges of how to produce this intimate, confessional style of audio journalism. Kirsty, welcome. Thank you for joining us on Streets of Your Town, The Journo Projects. It's a pleasure to be here. Kirsty, congratulations. Firstly, only just this weekend, won a couple of gongs at the WA Media Awards. Fantastic. Thank you. Can you tell us a bit about the stories that you won for? Yes, it was the same story. So it was a story called The Ghosts
1: of Whittenoom, and it was about... The kind of untold story of the impact of asbestos mining at Whitton on local Aboriginal people.
0: Which I imagine
1: is massive but very underreported. Underreported and really devastating. It's if, if the Aboriginal people of the Pilbara were a country, they would have the highest rates of mesothelioma in the world. Now that's extraordinary, don't you think? Absolutely. Yeah. And so when I heard that, I just, I'd never heard it before. I'd had a bit on Wind Noon before and mm. I'd obviously read a lot. i quite fascinated with it. Mm. And when I heard that, I just, I was just so horrified. And you
0: thought, I have to do more on yeah. it. And mm. there was a personal
1: connection. I knew, mm-hmm. I had met a couple of the Bunjima elders and I remember sitting, it was the Karajini experience in April last year. And we were camping on the airstrip at Karajini National Park. And we had, were having breakfast with one of the elders mm, and his brother who is the star of the show, I guess you'd say, Maitland Parker, the most beautiful man. And his brother Trevor was sitting there and telling us about when they were kids and about how he was the one who used to pick up the asbestos from the ground and chew on it. Because and I they, was
0: reading it, that they played in it and it, yeah, everything.
1: Oh, just chewed so. on it, like chewing gum. Incredible. And he just had this, you could see almost a survivor mm. guilt mm. And, and a disbelief, I guess, that he... Mm was okay and his brother wasn't and you know he's so adored the brother Maitland and so when I heard that I just thought oh my goodness I just I have to do something on this and so you know it's always it's always bittersweet winning an award and being acknowledged for work (laughs) that's born of someone else's grief so I always feel kind of conflicted But they were very firm on wanting to do the story. It was a collective decision that the board of the Bunjima people made. So
0: you consulted them before you went ahead? Absolutely, yes. So
1: I went and met with, uh, actually, Maitland and Trevor's brother, Slim Parker, who was the chair of the Bunjima Native Title Aboriginal Corporation. And, you know, the, the protocol was to go and speak with him and get his okay. So I did that and then went and sat with Maitland and got his okay and... So I went through that process uh, and they they, they then had been collectively discussing for a long time about really going hard about this issue of the remaining asbestos tailings that sit in with Noom Gorge and getting them cleaned up.
0: And I think this points to a lot of things about your practice, Kirsty, and how you find your stories. I think sometimes people who aren't journalists think these stories just land in our lap, but, of course, it's quite a complex, circuitous route sometimes to getting to, to these these huge stories that take a lot of time, but you've got other stories going on as well while you're trying to get these other ones going in the future. Almost I? always, circuitous. <laughs> <laughs> Almost
1: always. I think the thing that, you, that the advice that I give young journalists when I talk to them is that always pay attention to what – sparks an interest in you because don't don't go so much with your head at first just go with your gut and and what is it that you kind of go oh oh I didn't know that oh wow that seems odd you know go with that gut feeling and sometimes it pans out, sometimes it doesn't. But yeah. it's pretty much all my stories have come from hearing a line in a conversation with friends, reading a throwaway line in a story somewhere else, you know, meeting someone and hearing them talk about something like that day up at up at Karajini. It's just, it always comes from something tiny. And, you know, bearing in mind, of course, that I don't work in, in the daily news and current affairs cycle. So I'm not having to... You know, monitor what the government's doing. I'm not having to <laughs> to, to follow that kind of. News You're looking cycle. at the long term. I'm looking at like what's going on under the
0: surface. Mm. And you'll be going to the Walkleys in a couple of weeks as well. Congratulations for that. Thank you. And uh, this is not your first time at the Walkleys, of course. No, I'm a triple a Walkley Award losing journalist. I like to say.
1: I think it'd be my tagline on top of my CV. <laughs> uh, although, you know, every time I haven't won. It's been to someone extraordinary, so you can't argue with that really. I mean, Trent Dalton, (laughs) first Walkley. I didn't win, Trent won, and we all know how extraordinary he is. On your
0: Trent, yes. And uh, and then the last time was
1: uh, the Messenger podcast that was produced by the Wheeler Centre by the brilliant Michael Green about Aziz on Manus Island, and that was an extraordinary body of work. And so, you
0: know... So I want to talk to you a bit more about how you have developed this very finely tuned social justice sense, I think, Kirsty. Not every Geno has that, but that seems to be a very rich mind for you with the stories that you pursue. Where do you think that that came from?
1: I get asked that a bit, and I've tried yeah, yeah, yeah. to really unpack that, and I'm not, I'm not sure where it came from, but my background is that I grew up in the country, in New South Wales, okay. in Dubbo, and... I do remember always really wanting to kind of push beyond the surface. And so for U10, I did social work as a, for my work experience. And I think that was sort of like a bit of a me trying to, knowing I was interested in people and issues, but not really knowing where to put that energy so I did that and realized pretty fast Being working in at the Dubbo hospital as a year 10 social worker that wasn't my bag (laughs) Uh, I think the next inkling I got was uh I don't know if it still exists in New South Wales but there was a a year 11 11 and 12 subject that was called society and culture and as part of that you had to do for year 12 your personal interest project which is like a mini thesis where you pick a subject And I only remembered this literally the other day, Mm. that I was going to do my personal interest project, this is 1988, uh, on the children of gay and lesbian parents. So when I think back to that, I think I always had it. And I think it was around that time that I realised I wanted to be a journalist.
0: Do you remember when the penny dropped? Was there anything in particular or it just kind of led you to that path? I don't remember a particular mm. penny. You mean in terms of journalism or yeah, in terms of social that, justice? That, well, I suppose a bit of both. They do tie together. But it's always interesting hearing how people kind of realise that there's oh. this world of journalism that might be a good, good outlet for them. Yeah, I mean, mm. I really
1: don't remember. I don't. I remember listening to RN or mm. things like that at home. That like I didn't word. grow up with that in the way that my kids have grown up yes. with that. Oh, I, I, I really don't know. I really don't know. But I do. I then went away to America on an exchange program for year 11 and 12 for a year. And I was at a school in inner city, Kansas City. Thought I'd be going to the south of France or something. <laughs> ended up in Kansas City, Missouri, which was the most extraordinary year of my life. Wow! truly uh, Still very profoundly affecting that year. And um, the school that I went to was the inner city school that was eighty five percent Black American. And again, I, and then they had a local. They had a student newspaper. I worked on the student newspaper. Came back. Ended up going to do journalism at Bathurst, and I really just can't remember a moment. It just. But I knew very. I remember. I know. I knew very clearly when I was away that year. So it would have been year eleven and twelve that I wanted to go into journalism.
0: Sounds like that that year was quite affecting. What were some of the things that you say it was so profound? What was what were some of the aspects of that?
1: I think that the group of friends that I connected with very early on in that year were very socially aware. There were, you know, I had black friends. I had gay friends. And that was not an experience that I had. You in know, Dubbo. Not, well, the, the Aboriginal friends I, you know, I had yeah. in Dubbo, but not so much yeah. today. day. Mm, mm. Not at that stage. And also there were something like about 100 other exchange students from the same program, AFS, who were also in Kansas City. It was a huge hosting region. And so we would have all these regular catch-ups. And so I found myself having friends from you know, Turkey, from the Basque country, from Chile, from Venezuela, from Thailand, from Japan, from every country you could imagine. And
0: so I think
1: the curiosity about Mm. people was always there.
0: From a young age, you realise there was a whole world out there, really. And I don't know if that really dawns on a lot of people at 16, 17, that's
1: for sure. And then just another thing I do remember Mm. is that in my second year of university, I did another exchange to the US, to Mm. Oregon. Mm. And uh, I was going over with another woman from my university uh, called Lisa, and she... And I was sitting next to each other and we knew each other but and we were friendly, but we weren't close friends. She's now one of my lifelong closest friends. But at the time we didn't know each other that well. And we sat together, we had this long haul flight from Sydney to San Francisco and I remember just picking her brain about, you know, oh, your mum, so your mum's with your stepdad, and so why this? She thought I was horrendous. She thought I was the nosiest bitch. And I remember just thinking, but that's just normal, isn't that normal? I mean, she didn't tell me that till much later, but it became a running joke because now the tide's turned and she's the same. So I guess what I'm getting at is I think that desire to kind of just be curious about people and why they are the way they are and how they got to be the way they are, how they got to be where they are and why, and what are all those forces shaping that has always been very present.
0: And here we are in your lovely Perth abode. Uh, how did you end up over here from that kind of background, Kirsty? <laughs> well, my
1: ex-husband is from here. Okay. Um, He wasn't my ex-husband when we came here, yes. obviously, but we <laughs> moved over from Sydney. Yep. In, from inner west sydney i've been at the abc for many years by then um had three kids uh, no family in sydney and two broke to buy a house and just thought oh, i'll come to perth for three or four years have a bit of an adventure give it a go give it a go but we just thought three or four years max and it's been 14
0: how different is wa from so the east coast
1: different in a way i never anticipated yeah. how does that inform your work oh hugely mm-hmm. hugely it's it's a gift to be here. Mm. Again, back to that fraught, conflicted (laughs) nature of whenever you're present somewhere where there's a lot of really great stories, it's usually because of someone else's disenfranchisement or disadvantage. So it's, it's fraught, but it is, Just physically, it's an incredible state. It's just so beautiful, so diverse. It's wonderful. But when I first moved here, it was really at the height of the mining boom. And, of course, I'd come from inner West Sydney. You know, all my my friends were sort of, you know, a bit lefty and anti-mining. No one really got it. And then I come here and half of my friends work in the mining industry in some form. It's become much more normalised in my mind now. I understand it much better. But it was really difficult to get my head around. I mean, you'd
0: understand being from Queensland. Totally. Right? In a way, it's similar to Queensland, similar, but different. But they're quite worlds to their own and see themselves yes. as quite renegade states. Yeah, and
1: matter. I, don't, mm. I don't, don't think you appreciate that mm. unless you live here. Mm. I cannot believe how much it's informed the way I look at the rest of Australia. It's extraordinary and it's completely different to having grown up in the country or having worked in or lived in the regions and that's different and vital, I think, yet again. But yeah, being
0: here has been eye-opening. And much as it's difficult to tell those stories, Cursey as you've touched on, do you see it as our responsibility as journalists? Like what drives you to keep going back to this difficult area and expose these injustices? Because even though you know the pain that that sometimes brings.
1: I will only ever do the story, obviously, with the full and willing participation of the person involved. And that usually takes time and it usually involves me approaching them or them approaching me or whatever and then asking them to sit on that for quite a bit of time to make sure this is really what they want to do, to expose themselves. I guess the beauty of working in radio is that you can... P- people are freer to speak without being identified, so that opens up a lot of opportunities that television doesn't. They don't have a camera in their face, and it's usually much, a bit more frank. much less intimidating, mm. much more intimate, much less intimidating. It's just me, like you, here now with mm. a little zoom, and it's it's just yeah, much more people. People's stories are much more accessible, I think, that
0: way. What sort of drives you to keep keep going, t- uh, telling those difficult? Stories, because they must be draining, Kirsty. Like, how do you look? You know, renew yourself. I suppose in that.
1: What I'm particularly drawn to is the taboo and the unaccepted, and it's about for me trying to understand that world and trying to get people to have some empathy for people we may not otherwise have empathy for. So I think. The program that, one of the programs I did that most challenged that was the story I did with child sex offenders. A lot of my friends and audience, I assume, had a lot of difficulty with me even contemplating doing that story. Sitting in a room across like this, very Mm -hmm. close proximity to two child sex offenders and talking to them about why they feel attraction to children and what triggers it and how they manage those feelings was one of the most confronting things I've ever done but it was fascinating and the underlying goal for me of that was ultimately we all want our children to be safe we all want to protect our children we don't want children being abused this is not just about finding empathy with a monster this is about trying to understand why people offend so we can know best how to treat them to prevent further abuse so that and i still feel that very keenly that we need to understand that point of view so we can develop policy and treatment
0: Mm, Based on, on knowledge. By not talking about it, we're not really getting to the bottom of that. You exactly. know, pretending yes. it doesn't happen yeah. or it's too, you know, too hard to talk about. And mm. I'm not
1: saying that people shouldn't go to prison for offences, mm. I'm not saying any of that. But ultimately people come out of prison. And if they've not been treated, they will re offend. Mm-hmm. And it's fairly well known that the in prison treatment programs are not very successful. And you're dealing with you're treating child sex offenders with rapists of adult women. And it's a completely different offence with completely different underlying motivations. And so I guess for me, it's about understanding that. And another story I did was with women whose husbands have been convicted of accessing child porn. And one of the the men I spoke to, actually, his wife had stayed with him and then I interviewed a woman who had a different woman who had stayed with her partner and again it was about trying to understand why someone would do that how could I, I just could not understand how you could do that and I wanted to understand I want people to understand that so I think for me I'm always driven by trying to bring something into the light that's been kind of shoved into the dark for a long time,
0: it fascinates me how many stories are there. I know even from myself that have been a well-known issue for years, but just almost lying there, waiting for somebody to to pick them up. Do you kind of feel oh, tell that? Tell me something Tell me some. Great, <laughs> <laughs> right, I'm looking for a story right now. Um, But yeah, and just something happens. That a bit of timing. Just it takes one case to really highlight a very long, very long and protracted problem or but yeah it's Mm. just fascinating and they're they're never easy to to talk about even though people have known about these these are all issues we're well aware of yeah look I think that I
1: think that pretty much most issues have been discussed in some form Mm. but often journos are bound by the daily or weekly Mm. news cycle and so they don't have the time or the funding to spend time really delving too deeply they can cover the issue in like a five minute piece for a for a.m. or Mm. you know p.m. but it's It's different to be able to spend months and months and months.
0: And that brings us to the story that we wanted to discuss today too, of course, the storm, Kirstie. I mean, that was just and and I'm looking at the awards here in your house for that (laughs) Uh, but I imagine as you've said that it's you feel a bit conflicted perhaps these it was an incredible story but so close to home that whole journey that you went on for that talk about months of gathering and how did you explore that with the very personal attachment of course to that story so for those who don't know the
1: storm is a story that I did with my ex-partner and father of my oldest child, who's now 25. My child's 25, not the ex. (laughs) (laughs) He came to me, uh, let's say, I can't remember the exact time, Mm. but let's say he came to me eight eight years ago and came out as having been abused as a child. Now, I knew a little bit of that story he'd told me when we were together, but he hadn't fully revealed the extent of his abuse and so I was shocked Um, it was really upsetting obviously to hear that someone that I still really loved Mm -hmm. had been so damaged and had such horrible things happened to them but I also really worried about the impact on my son so he would have been near 17, 18 at the time so a few months after that uh, Eric came back to me and said Actually asked for a contact for some friends of mine because he wanted someone to to tell this story about um, some of the issues with getting compensation. And the more I started talking to him, the more I started thinking, oh, if anyone's gonna do this story, maybe the best person is me. And well, I also having said that, at the same time, was trying to talk him out of doing it, out Mm. of going to the media, because I really worried about the backlash about himself, him making himself so vulnerable. And you know
0: the cost involved, yeah.
1: And I, so the more he thought about it, the more he wanted me to do it and do it in a long-form style. So I, I said, look, I want you to go back and speak to your counsellor about it. I want you to spend the next few months thinking about it. We can keep having dialogue. And so it was about a good six months that passed before I finally said, Okay, he was—he didn't waver. Yeah. Actually, he may have in his own head, but not to me. He didn't waver. He was very firm on doing it. Now, of course, from so that's one hurdle. The next hurdle was that, of course, we've all heard a lot of sexual abuse stories. It was the middle of the royal commission. They're always devastating. They're always important, but there's only so much an audience can take of those stories. So, aside from the fact. You know, aside from the question of whether or not it had been overdone and it there was also that issue of, well, how do we get people to listen? because back then the program was fifty three minutes long. How do we get people to listen to a story of horror for fifty three minutes? It's a big ask. And so the thing that theme that kept coming up when I was discussing it with my EP, was the guilt that it was bringing up in me about ways i had reacted or ways i had behaved with him with what had turned out to be symptomatic behaviors as a result of the trauma and i had huge guilt about my reaction and i just thought how could i as someone who sees myself as so empathetic and insightful how could i have missed this how could i not have seen the clues And, you know, I was very young. I was 21, 22, 23. Um, But I did put myself... I beat myself up a lot about about that. And so then I decided, actually, that was the story. The story was how his trauma had continued to impact his life, how it had impacted his relationships, his parenting. And we were an example of how... Childhood sexual abuse just ripples on and on and on and on. And, on. and, and the ramifications of it for and all generations. Those for generations. Mm-hmm. And so I decided that, that that would be the focus, that I would establish. It was the first time I'd ever done that where I'd you know, taken myself into and you a story. you were part story. of the story. I was part of the story.
0: That would have been difficult, I It imagine. was really
1: difficult. It was really difficult to work mm. out, to tread that fine line between being self-indulgent, revealing too much, but giving enough... That the audience felt confided in. So that was just a constant, you know, walking a tightrope, running it past my EP all the time. But the other thing I had to do was it was so it was so much unrelenting horror in that story that I had to find ways of lightening it. And one of the ways that I used was to make make the bush a character in the piece.
0: That's where Eric was living.
1: Yeah, he was living in the bush and it was his saviour somewhat. And he is has always been a huge nature lover and bushwalker and camper and so he was walking me through his you know, the the bush, he bordered a national park at the time and we were walking through it. And, you know, just the way he would speak to the animals and the birds, it was like they were friends. And it's
0: where he found solace.
1: Exactly. And so I realised that that had to become a character and that was kind Mm. of a way of providing a bit of levity in the program Mm. and a bit of humour also, actually. Um, and, And so then I started that program... He hated it when he first heard it. I think he was quite angry with me, uh, but I think he, he then came to realise why I'd done it. Uh, but I started that program with this audio of <laughs> of him doing this huge burp <laughs> and me saying, oh, I'm going to use that, you know. And he was saying, you better not. And I used that because... It immediately established our relationship, and the intimacy, and that the that you intimacy, shared. yeah, and it yeah. was light, and people kind of thought, oh, okay, maybe this isn't going to be just this, you know, <laughs>
0: awful story. Yes, it's not just historical; it's it's bringing it into the prison and yeah, it's something that you never knew for so long, and how that's impacted your whole family mm. and beyond.
1: Yeah, but you know, it was a, it was very traumatic for him. Mm to tell me that story. We spent five or six days together on his property, which was a half-built house with no electricity and no running water. And, you know, he's the most beautiful man, but he's very damaged and he's very unwell. And so I felt this huge responsibility for him and there was a, there's a moment that you hear in the program where he starts to lose it and I, I really panic. I had no phone reception. I was really worried he was going to hurt himself. And, then, and I think that was just... There will never be another moment in my career, I think, where I realise, where I thought about how... How can I say this? Where I questioned what I do.
0: The feedback to it was huge because there were just hundreds of people who responded with comments about how it gave them an insight into that true cost of sexual abuse. I mean, that and, you know, the the awards that you've received for that work, does that comfort you that you did a great thing? I mean, how do you reflect on that now? For me, the measure of whether it's been successful
1: Successful has always been the way the person who features in it feels about it, and so at first I didn't hear from him for about a week. Oh, that would have been
0: torturous. All of and I knew you. I had to give him
1: that space. Wow! And by the time we finally spoke, he admitted that he'd been really angry with me when he heard it because, say, like that story with the bird mm. that I told you about, and there's another scene in it that is one of my favourites where he's talking about uh, the frogs around the pond and he's mimicking them and he thought that I'd made him sound like an idiot. And, oh, my heart was so broken because what I was actually trying to do in those moments was was make people love him as much as I did, and they did. Mm. So the audience, you know, the feedback I got, I mean, apart from just people feeling so deeply for him with all the horrible stories but it was those human moments that made people just love him and showed him the showed people that Eric that I knew and so once I sort of explained to him why I'd done that and he could listen back and hear hear it that way he got it and he 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 totally understood and he and in the end he loved it but it, it did come at a great cost. And one of the things he's always said is that...
0: To both you know, of you, by the sound of it. Mm. Yeah,
1: to both of us. But, mm. you know, I yeah, he, for him, obviously mm. much more. But one of the things he always said was that he thought that getting to the age of 40 and deciding to address these issues would be finally healing, that he would finally be free. And it's actually made everything worse for him uh, with his mental health. And it's been a lot harder uh, I hope that he continue. That, that, um, I hope at some point the benefits of speaking out. I mean, I'm not talking about just to me. I'm talking about mm. speaking out to other people mm. and going through the court system and um, going to the, through the royal commission. I hope at some point that that feels beneficial to him. Mm. But I don't think. I think the
0: stress of it has outweighed the benefit. Oh, Kirstie, I mean, it's so difficult for you as a journalist. Were there times that you thought, this is all just too hard, I don't think I can do this game (laughs) anymore? So often. Mm.
1: I mean, that story, the pressure of that story almost broke me. And, you know, I I feel terrible saying that because, you know, (laughs) Eric's pain is the real pain. But I felt a huge amount of pressure to get his story right for him. I felt a huge amount of pressure for him to like it. I felt very worried about my son hearing it and how he would feel about it. And I didn't want him to be carrying that trauma for his dad. So there there was a lot of pressure around that. And I don't know, when you... I mean, anyone who creates something will understand that feeling of... You know, whether it's art or a book or it's a radio piece or whatever it is, it, it, when it's very public and it holds a lot of you in it, it's so stressful. Very exposing. It's
0: very <laughs> exposing, and yeah.
1: and you know you have to have, you have to develop a thick skin because mm. you're always going to get criticism.
0: Mm. And Eric's mum was in it as well. Oh, um, oh of course, and yeah. that
1: too was yeah. that actually was quite a fundamental. Uh, life moment for me Mm. because there were certain ways he spoke about his home and his family that actually was just a reflection of the abuse and I was I just heard it through his through his stories and I didn't really I was very young and I didn't really get to know them as well they didn't live close to us and I always really liked them but I kind of bought his representation of the situation and, you know, because then when he and I eventually separated and, of course, we had a child together, I felt it was very much his responsibility to maintain that relationship with his parents and to, to develop that relationship between their grandchild and, you know, them and the, between his son and, the, and his parents. But knowing what I now... What, knowing what I came to know... About the abuse and why he just had to reject so much of that part of his life. He wasn't, he wasn't capable at that stage, of maintaining that relationship, and so I felt huge guilt at not having recognised that and not having done it myself. So I feel, felt like my son's grandmother and my son really missed out on that. So it was profoundly affecting personally. And Absolutely. I imagine it perfect- that was he- it was. Sorry, I was just going to say it was healing. Then sitting down with her, mm. and I recorded me expressing that, and that um, important that context
0: brought to the story too.
1: Yeah, and so it was. And she's the most beautiful woman. Mm. Um, and so it was a very her, of oh, just mm. horrendous. You can you can't mm. you can imagine mm. you, know, you can't imagine you can't imagine you can't imagine it's horrendous. Mm. So, and it was it was, a, it was a very profoundly healing moment. And, yeah, it's just funny, isn't it, how your life and your career pans out? And, And yes, how they intertwine. It's (laughs) very true. Yeah, the Mm. stories that end up defining you.
0: Well, and how does that affect your storytelling going on? I can can imagine it must have ripple effects even for you. you. You've spoken about empathy a few times and we've discussed that even before coming to this interview a bit about because that's always been a big driver for me with my stories and I have an intellectually disabled brother so I've always felt a particular empathy with disability stories. In that my particular antenna was honed more in that way, but I wonder there there is it's not always maybe the best approach, is it? You it know that's interesting. Thing. Now have you heard? Because <laughs> <laughs> we'll, you sent me that link to this story yeah, to the Invisibilia. To yes. Mm. yes. Okay.
1: So uh, there was a story recently on the NPR program Invisibilia, mm. and some of you may have heard it, and it's about how you, about, basically about approaching a story. So what they did was they were testing a potential employee and what they do is they, they send them a rough cut of an interview and they get them to, to make a story out of it. But Hannah, the host, had already made her own version of that story and what she got back from the intern was entirely unexpected. So the approach of invisibilia has always been one of empathy, of understanding people you may not want to you know hoping to create you know create empathy um for people that you may not otherwise feel empathy for and i guess that's always been as you say it's always been you know underpinning all of my work is that that there's something in everyone that we can love and empathize Mm -hmm.
0: with and walk in their shoes for a bit
1: and so this particular story was about a young a male incel in america and the story that hana produced was was quite empathetic trying to understand why he had behaved a certain way about a certain thing and then the in, the potential employee did the story but she just saw through her perspective was that she saw through all of the bs all his stories and picked up on things and it really challenged the invisibility of team's Uh, perspective and approach to stories that maybe why you know this this young woman was saying well why do we need to empathize you know maybe there's some people we just do not need to empathize with and I was listening to this on a plane (laughs) the other day and I just thought oh my goodness (laughs) oh my goodness Um, How do do we we? unpack this? So I wonder what this young woman would have done with my story about child sex offenders.
0: Well, that's right. And I think I came to the end of it thinking, I don't think it negates my approach, but perhaps it's good to reflect on it at times. And even to to realize that's what you're doing and that it's a choice. And I think the other thing too, is that just because you are doing a story
1: where you're hoping to kind of provoke or evoke empathy, it Mm. doesn't mean... It doesn't mean you're not being critical. Mm. It doesn't mean that you're not bringing a critical approach to it. It doesn't mean you, you think that what this person's doing or saying is okay. You're not. You're still bringing that critical element mm. to the table. But, but you have to do both. But it was a really good reminder mm. to me to actually
0: to, – to, uh, it was just a really good reminder. It was a very – It reminds me even of a comment that Trent Dalton said to me that uh, sometimes his wife reads his work and tells him, oh, you were were too empathetic in that. Like, you don't need to to be that sympathetic to that particular person. And he said that's been a real lesson to him, that at times he can... So I think this might be a common problem that us journalists might need to unpack a bit more.
1: Yeah, I think that for those of us who... I think in some ways I'm a little bit of a sucker like that I can have empathy for almost some level of empathy for almost anybody and that is challenging to a lot of people but it also means that I am willing to do stories that other people are not willing to do and I think also that and I'm not speaking here about actually some of the challenging stories. I'm just talking about stories in general now and, and, and subjects, interview subjects in general. But with this form of long-form work, you know, where you actually go and spend a fair bit of time with people, creating a relationship and building a bond and developing some trust, I fall a little bit in love with almost everybody that I interview And that means that, you know, I feel a huge responsibility to tell their story well. And, you know, when you're then listening to their voice for weeks and weeks and weeks after, so it's not just the time you spend with them, but it's listening back to them and hearing, you just learn to kind of, you know, you feel like,
0: your friends after you've <laughs> been working with their voice for, it, it
1: is. For, for
0: two months or whatever. It's part of the process. Yeah. yeah. No, the there process. And that intimacy. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. I always feel that that voice element of radio and podcasting, you do feel like you've got, have got a piece of them almost like the, of that person yeah yeah, mm. yeah well to finish Kirsty, thank you so much again for joining us on the journal project but i have asked every journal just about of course the, the developments this year and their perspective on the particularly the afp raids on abc and news limited what that raised for you i suppose and whether what the response of the media has been to that i mean are, are you concerned of these developments this year
1: I think the work I do is not going to be of interest to the AFP, so I don't feel like it's something I need to worry about personally. Um, But, of course, it's profoundly worrying. I saw the article that Annika had written uh, last week and I feel for her deeply. It's so invasive to have had that happen. And I think just that feeling of we all know how much our relationship with our talent and our contacts relies on trust... And even for me, who doesn't do stories like in the national interest per se, you know, there's a huge amount of trust and a lot of identities are protected in the stories that I do. And I think if anyone ever got my contacts and revealed who these people were, it's just so... It's it's attacking such a profoundly sacred part of our profession.
0: Does it put democracy at threat too, in, in, in a sense? Is that what we need to communicate perhaps a bit better to people? Look, I think
1: that the general public was very concerned about it, actually. I don't think we need to sell that message too hard because I think people really got it. I think a lot of people... I think the general public saw that as highly inappropriate. As a highly inappropriate action by the government, so I think that they kind of mis- they misread the feeling of the public there. I think what concerns me as much as that is the evolving technology um, that's going to lead to things like you know all sorts of deep fakes. I've just done a story about deep fakes. Mm-hmm. Uh, about a young woman whose uh, images were lifted from her social media and used in deep fake pornography. Uh, but the broader issues around that are that you're going to end up, once this technology becomes completely believable, which experts say is going to be 18 months to two years down the track, you're going to end up with situations where... People have done something and have been recorded and filmed doing something they did do and they'll be able to claim that they didn't, that it's a deep fake. So that will argument's going to flip from, you know, something genuinely being fake that we can all look at and go, oh, OK, well, that's obviously fake, to people claiming that true things are fake when they're real.
0: That is so worrying, isn't it? Yeah, and but- that's
1: what researchers are calling the liar's dividend. And I think that is huge, hugely problematic. And I think that particularly when we're looking forward to 2020 US presidential election, that is something we're going to have to be very mindful of.
0: And as journalists, to be able to expose that, I mean, that just help, means we need to raise our game, suppose, Well, yes, I think? mean, then, look, you know, yeah. it's a, it's a, the, the,
1: the people who are researching this are calling it an arms race because, mm. you know, as soon as the researchers working to detect deep fake technology find some sort of solution the deep fake technology developers find a workaround and thus it keeps going on and on and on and Mm. on and on and so you know it really is an issue and you know we've all got we've all got people in our lives who post things on facebook share things on email that are blatantly fake <laughs> and untrue and who believe it and this is at a point where the technology is actually fairly easy to detect that it's fake um so you know i um, the the concern is, i have and a lot of people have is you know when this technology is is even better in you know, 18 months or two years that, that that those of us who should know better may not be able to know better and that's where you know the all the platforms like Twitter and uh, Twitter and Instagram and Snapchat and Facebook in particular need to really step up.
0: Well, that seems like a, a good place to end, <laughs> Kirsty, and very thought-provoking. We'll ponder that for a while. Thank you very much again for, uh, for joining us on, on the Journal Project podcast. You're so welcome. Thank you. That was Walkley Award finalist and radio documentary producer Kirsty Melville speaking to me in her Perth home for The Journo Project. Streets of Your Town is produced by Nance Haxton, a.k.a. The Wandering Journo, with production assistance from Michael Adams. That's it for this episode. I'm Nance Haxton, Stay up to date with the latest episode of Streets of Your Town by subscribing on your podcast app on iTunes or SoundCloud. See you next time.